0: Sam Mellinger here, sports columnist for the Kansas City Star. And thank you for giving the Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears podcast a try. I hope we're worth your time. We're going to start with baseball. We've talked some about this on previous episodes, and I wrote a column this week that obviously I hope you read, but I wanna emphasize two main points here. First, the column was much more pessimistic than I expected when I started making calls. I I was surprised at how universal the feeling was that leadership on both sides, players and the union, were doing more than just the typical posturing. The level of self-inflicted wounds here is staggering. The sport should have been the first back, you know, but right now, It's the only of five major professional leagues in this country without a plan. You know, that is particularly astounding because baseball needs to capture those fans more than any of the other leagues. Look, when I woke up this morning, I had text messages from two friends who work in baseball. One was a scout who I didn't talk to for the column. And he said, and I'm reading the text right now, I'm a little offended you didn't call me LOL, but it sounds like you talked to people who would have said the same thing I would have. The other was from the one man I talked to for the column who was optimistic. He texted, I still think I'll see you at the ballpark, but I get the frustration. And that's a hell of a point. Look like whether baseball plays a 2020 season or not, that's not the only important thing here. You know, Process matters, like optics matter. This is a business in need of growing its reach. An opportunity to gain new fans and reconnect with old fans has been mangled so completely that even if they return in a month, they've already turned off so many. You know, these are businesses, like I'm not here shedding a tear for their financial losses, the same as I'm not applauding their record revenues. But, you know, someone who just deeply loves baseball, who has so many positive memories of the sport and hopes to be raising two future baseball fans, you know, that part of it just makes me so sad. The other point is like, you know, we all have a right to our own perspectives. You know, we all have opinions and I'm not gonna tell you yours is wrong. But I have to say something, you know, like there's this sort of screw the greedy players crowd, and I've never understood the default from so many, and this is true in all sports, not just baseball, but the default seems to be to side against players and with owners. You know, and I I guess I have theories, including the fact that athlete salaries are reported to the dollar and owners have done a bang up job of keeping their profits secret. But, you know, think about it like this. The average owner is in the game 20 years or more. The average player has maybe five, and that's not even long enough to reach free agency. The owners have skyrocketing franchise values on their side and enough seasons of profit to offset a half season of losses. All of that is true, and owners still want players to take on pay cuts beyond pro rata, even though the players are the ones leaving their families to work through a global pandemic while the owners sit safely in quarantine. I I know we all just want baseball back, and ultimately don't really care if one side caves or they meet in the middle. But I just don't understand why the consensus always seems to be that the players are spoiled and should give in. You know, my hope has always been and will always be the baseball returns. That's number one, the only thing that really matters. But beyond that, look, I hope the players get every single dollar they can. All right, before we take a short break, here's a quick reminder that if you'd like to participate in the show, please call 816-234-4365 leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. It's been really cool seeing so many of you take me up on this and I hope it continues. Again, 816-234-4365. Hope to hear from you. All right, quick break, and then we're back with this week's questions.
1: Hello, Sam, I read your paper, and it said I can call in, I have a question. Uh, you know, about this injustice going on. And my name is Marvin. I'm living in Kansas City, Kansas. My question is, uh, in the Constitution it says justice for all. For all, uh, for all, what, what, the, who does that mean? Because I'd like to know if, if, if the, uh, if the cop had been black who was, who had his knee in the back of a, black, a white man's neck and he ended up dying, what would happen to that cop? You know, if, you know, if things were reversed, what would happen to that cop? Or if a black cop was handling a, a, a white man uh, 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 roughly, what would happen? How can people expect cops, uh, black cops, to to be comfortable in an environment where it's alright for, for for the white man to to rough up the black kid, but if the black cop did the same thing to white? Uh, 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 That's a problem. Thank you.
0: Look, guys. Uh, same as the columns I write for KansasCity.com, uh, this podcast won't often veer from sports or other silliness. But this is one of those times for exceptions, and I'm glad that Marvin called in. You know, look, there there are instances of police misconduct against white people, right? Like those things exist, of course they do. But by no reasonable measure are they as common as against black people. And that is heartbreaking. It's frustrating. It's defeating. Um, I can't know what that's like, obviously, and that's part of the problem, right? Um, you know, I don't have answers on this, but I guess I have some ideas like anybody else. You know, like, I, I think that those of us who can't relate to these experience can at least listen, right? We, we can take ownership that even as we aren't discriminating or judging, we can still take some responsibility to be part of the solution. And again, I don't know what that is exactly, (laughs) the solution, but I do think it can be helpful to listen and not just to listen, but to reach out to our friends, let them know we're with them, let them know we care, let them know this shouldn't be like a black or white problem, but something we all work together to improve. You know, this is related, but the other thing that's becoming increasingly clear is that white people need to be more active and productive part of the solution. So do cops, you know, the vast majority of whom are good people with good intentions. You know, we all need to be more vocal when we see or hear something, be more empathetic. You know, I'll give you an example, um, just because it stuck with me. But a few years back, I was with a friend and, he was talking about his neighborhood's, you know, holiday celebration with a neighbor of his. So this is three white guys talking, and the neighbor said something kind of derogatory about another race joining the celebration. Um, guys, I didn't say anything. You know, um, I hate saying that. I didn't say anything. I, I stared at the neighbor. Um, I shook my head. I sort of like awkwardly looked away. In my mind, in the moment, you know, I didn't think it was my place. You know, I was the outsider in that situation, but I failed. Um, And maybe that sounds like a small thing, but it would have been a small thing for me to be better in that moment. So anyway, you know, this is my promise that I'll be better in the next moment. And um, I I think we can all be a little bit better. So, okay, let's get to some sports. Hey, Sam, I guess a question I would have would be,
2: Do we have any indication that the new ownership group for the Royals is willing to, you know, open the wallet a little more and spend a little more on payroll than the very parsimonious Glass family? You know, like, do we have a sense of... It would be nice to think that the new owner will spend a little more. Um,
1: Just curious what your thoughts there.
0: Thanks. Well there's just no way to know what John Sherman and his group will do with the payroll, right? But I want to first point out again that this image of David Glass as like a penny-pinching Scrooge is just plainly wrong. Um, you know, he wore the brunt of fan frustration in those board of director years and then, you know, sort of lived down to the lowest expectations his first six years of ownership. But I've always maintained that if, you know, in a hypothetical world, if David Glass sold the team in 2006 and the new owner operated exactly how Glass did from then on, that new owner would have a glorious reputation in and around Kansas City. You know, the Royals spent record amounts in the draft and internationally. They built the game's best farm system for a time uh, from basically spare parts. They they won the dang World Series. And, you know, depending on what you think of the Marlins. The Royals are either the only or one of just two small market clubs to win the World Series this century. You know, their their rank in payroll was consistently higher than their rank in revenues. Uh, but I get it. You know, that first impression was just so bad. It's like Glass's public image just never caught up with reality. But, you know, anyway, you're, you're asking about Sherman and, you know, we don't know. He hasn't owned the team long enough, but, and I know I wrote some of this the other day, but I do think that we have the most useful clues yet of how he'll run the team, you know, from his decision to not release a single minor leaguer and not issue pay cuts or furloughs to any non-executives. Uh, you know, I, I think that this is the clearest, you know, clue of what he'll be. And I think it shows him to believe in what he bought. It shows he was serious when he said he views the team as a civic responsibility. It shows he was serious when he said he's not worried about losing money here and there. And it shows he's willing to be his own man. And, you know, again, we don't know what he'll be willing to do in free agency or whether he'd have backed, for instance, you know, winning the negotiations for contracts for, you know, home ground stars like Lorenzo Cain and Eric Cosmer, Right. My guess is that's unlikely, you know, simply because Sherman can't change the league's financial setup, but I guess we'll see. But, you know, what I do know for now is that when Sherman has had a chance to be who he said he'd be, he's come through. And I think that's important. Okay, uh, here's a Chiefs question, and I've thought about this from time to time.
2: This is AJ in Lonexa. I've been wondering, with pa- Patrick Mahomes as special... And his relationship with Reed's creativity on offense is ridiculous. Would Mahomes be as successful with another team and coach? In other words, would he be the top quarterback in the NFL without Reed's willingness for Patrick
0: to be Patrick? It's a great question. You know, Uh, it's one of these great sports questions because we can't know the answer. But, you know, I, I do feel strongly about a couple things. All right. So first, he is in the perfect situation to bring out his best. And we have all the proof we need for that. You know, Reed's quarterbacks have always performed well. And I also think about the fact that if if Tyreek Hill played somewhere else, we'd all sort of daydream what it would like what it would look like if Mahomes could play with Hill, you know, like all that arm talent and all that speed at receiver. It just it really is a perfect partnership. So, you know, here's what I believe. If the Chiefs would have drafted Deshaun Watson instead of Mahomes, Watson would be a star. He would be even better than he's been with the Texans. You might think this is extreme, um, but I believe Andy Reid would have Mitch Trubisky playing like a top 10 or 12 quarterback. You know, context just matters so damn much with that position. And, and you can see that in Alex Smith's career arc, you know, how bad he was with the 49ers when they were dysfunctional. And then he was an effective quarterback with, with Harbaugh. Uh, and then he was, you know, leading the league in, in passer rating with the Chiefs. So, uh, you know, Reid can simplify first quarterbacks. He can offer easy plays to get them rhythm. And he understands, like, what this guy is comfortable and best doing, and he builds around that. And I know, like, all coaches try to do that, but, you know, fewer as good as Reed. You know, all that said, like, Andy Reed, he has never had a quarterback throw for 5,000 yards and 50 touchdowns, right? Like, he's never had a quarterback complete three consecutive playoff, playoff comebacks like that, or, you know, he's never had a quarterback win a Super Bowl. You know, Mahomes is just physically and mentally capable of things that no other quarterback Reed has had could do. And, you know, maybe this is a clear way to think about it, right? Like, you know, Reed was probably a Hall of Fame coach before Mahomes ever got here. And if Mahomes decides tomorrow to just quit football, like Reed will find another quarterback to make better. But if you're running another franchise and you're given the choice between Mahomes as your quarterback or Reed as your coach, you bet your ass you are taking Mahomes. Like he is the most valuable human in the NFL, regardless of job title. So that's how I feel. All right. Thanks again for the questions. We're going to do a short break and then get to our conversation with Peter Vermees. Okay, we're going to do the conversation a little differently this week. I hope you saw the column that posted Friday morning on Peter Vermees. The idea for that came a few different ways, including that most influential list we did recently. Peter was in the top 10, and I was sort of, I guess, pleasantly surprised that of all the feedback I got on that thing, nobody had a problem with him being that high. You know, he, he came here 20 years ago, first as a defender who helped turn the Wizards from last place in 1999 to MLS Cup champs in 2000. And, you know, of course, he spent the last 11 years as both the head coach and technical director of one of the league's most consistently successful franchises. I talked to Peter and assistant coach Carrie Zavagnan, among others, for the column. And I wanted to share parts of those conversations here, including a story about Peter that I'd never heard before, but explains a lot of who he is. So here first is Peter on what it was like playing for the Wizards in the beginning.
3: You know, you could go into so many different things. Uh, you know, we, we didn't even have. And I'm not saying that you should have, but we didn't even have bottled water. We didn't have Gatorade. Like, we didn't have anything. Yeah. Uh, We used to pass the hat around the the locker room to to raise some money for, like, the next day or for that week to maybe buy some bagels or something to have at the facility in the morning when the guys came in.
0: He played three years for the Wizards, then did a few other things, including some TV work, before coming back first as a consultant and then as technical director in 2006. I asked him what changed while he was gone.
3: Probably a lot of the same people that were very dedicated to the team, um, but I don't think the fan base increased all that much mm-hmm. and I, I you know I always say that the fan the fan base increased um, just as we opened up the new facility, you know the new stadium. Yeah, and 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 I always I always make the comparison, or I, or I make the the uh, you know I, I I guess I emphasize this point, and that is, it really felt as if there was obviously there was this newness, right, to this new stadium, and people were like, "What's this going to be like?" And when they came in there, and they got you know they 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 got captured by. The ambiance, the environment, which was incredible when that place was full, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, those people, uh, there's two things that that grabbed them. One is they were they were they were captured by the environment and the ambiance. But the other was is that they also realized that it was their home, because we didn't have a home. We were always a stepchild. Yeah. You know, at like Arrowhead and everywhere else. And so those people that now got captured that maybe weren't fans before and now got sort of that soccer bug or whatever you want to call it. I believe that they, they, they got snagged also by having like a buy-in it was, it's theirs ownership as opposed to being the step shot, stepchild in like say Arrowhead. There was a big difference between those two things. And I think that's what, that's how our fan base really, really took off. And I mean, obviously there was a lot of other things, the team, um, I thought we did a great job with the, 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 you know, the new, the rebrand and all those other things. But the bottom line, the team had to, the team had to have something to, to, to also capture the fans. And the fact that the guys played a certain style and they also left everything out on the field from a work ethic perspective, I think that really connected with, um Midwest, our fan base, just all of that.
0: So then I asked a little about the rebrand and the stadium and the idea that they were building something that depended on capturing something that had not yet been captured here or in a lot of places. Honestly, that is a huge risk. I asked him if he had any doubts, whether it would work.
3: You know, you, you, you're on, you're on to a, a very important, uh, part of this. This was a, a, um, a topic of debate and, if you remember during that time in Major League Soccer, there were a lot of there were a lot of different um, markets that would go out and get a player that they deemed would bring the fans in. So if you had a real strong Latino base, you went and got, you know, a Latino. If you had a really strong, let's say, uh, like in Chicago at one point, they had a real strong uh Polish base they felt, they went and got a couple Polish players. And don't get me wrong, that that obviously is a way to increase fan increase you know uh um interest all that but i always maintained uh and i always maintained the same argument i said look if you have a team that competes if you have a team that in the way that they play in their style of play that the fans can connect with and that the fans can respect that there's going to be times when you lose, but if you lose, that the guys didn't just give up, but they fought to the last whistle, right? Like, if if you, if you can deliver that week in and week out, then you don't have to go and, and try the gimmicks. And that will be what sustains you for long term, and I've always believed that. Um, it's the same thing that I think about. I kind of, you know, you hear me probably have heard me talk about uh, model of play. And, 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 you know, people always sit there and they say, you know, we want to win, we want to win, we want to win. Yeah, I get you want to win. But unless you have a system or a style or a model of play, you, you first have to establish that, which then my belief is if you actually do, your system or your model of play or your style of play really well, then that actually spits out the wins. But if you don't do that, then you're, you're always, you're hoping that the guys have a good day today to get you the win as opposed to relying on, Hey, this is, this is our strategy. And I, I, I believe that the strategy is what's going to win, but at the same time, the players are going to be, they're going to be, prepared well enough that they'll be able to give you this consistent performance within that strategy all the time. That's always going to keep you competitive as opposed to just hoping that, Hey, you know, 10 or nine out of the 10 guys had, were on today and that's why we won. That's yeah. a different way of going about your business. And so it was the same thing. I believe in how we connected with the fans. And I think that's why, you know, that's why there's been this increase, um, not only in, fan participation, but also in the participation of soccer in and around this region like it has been. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, And you you needed to have that sort of foundation of how you play uh, built before the stadium was. And I'm just, what what were the challenges in getting that, you know, making sure that when that stadium opens, you guys were, were worthy of you know, this bigger audience? What, what were the challenges involved in that? Yeah, it, it, again, it's, honestly, Sam, it's a great question because actually the timing wound up being really, you know, if I if I go back and think about it, the timing was perfect because, you know, I, 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 was, I was asked to take over the team for those like 10 games left in the season in 2009. Mm-hmm. And so I, I actually, as much as I wasn't really too sure about doing it, it also gave me a really good, evaluation period of the players that we currently had and what needed to change. And so if you remember like those next couple of years, I mean, I went heavy in the draft Mm -hmm. and and I mean, I drafted guys are still with us today from that time period. And, and, and they've all had, you know, major contributions to the success of this club over those years. And, and what has happened is, is that you, I had 2010 to really try to establish a foothold or a foundation of our model of play which then allowed as we went into 2011 where we had to play those first ten games on the road and I and I remember I mean, look i'm not I'm not naive to it I remember that you know everybody wanted my everybody wanted my head in that first ten games <laughs> because we were on the road and we weren't we weren't getting the results but I really had this belief that we were on to something. I knew it. I knew we were right there. It was like, it was like we just needed to, we, like we were on the fence, and we just needed somebody to just give us this kind of like little bit of nudge because we're going to fall onto the right side of this. And 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 we were right there. And and all of a sudden, I remember we we came off that opening game here at home, and we went and we played Dallas, and we and something happened. The guys just, it's like, they let their hair hang hang down, and they just went after it. And from that point, we just, like, kept taking big steps. And they started to believe and were confident in that the style of play, the model of play, could get them the results. And then they started to play more and more towards that, which obviously started getting them more results.
0: I'm glad I was able to talk to Carrie's Zavagnan for this. There probably isn't anyone in the world who knows Peter better professionally. They both came to the Wizards in 2000, and while they were here, they would get to talking about what they would do if they ever ran a team of their own. Well, now Carrie's an assistant coach, and they're able to kind of execute that same plan that they talked about all those years ago. So I asked Carrie what Vermees has that equips him for this challenge.
2: The things that he does is not built for one person and yet he does them and he does them on a consistent basis. And so his, his work ethics certainly um, is, is one of the overriding factors of why he's been able to handle so many things over the course and build this, this organization um, to the level that it is. The other aspect I think that that's interesting um, is that he has experience from, as I mentioned earlier, the grassroots level of youth soccer, um, all the way up through uh, U.S. Soccer, being on the board uh, at U.S. Soccer, uh, navigating in those um, arenas off the field, um, and then certainly as a manager and a player in, in Major League Soccer. So, um, not 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 to minimize his experiences that he's had overseas, but to really have a clear understanding of how soccer works from the professional level all the way down to the grassroots. um, I haven't met somebody that has that knowledge um, uh, in the, in the depths that he does. And then finally, I would say that, you know, if you're a coach, a lot of coaches, um, and it's the nature of the profession is that um, they move from place to place very, very rapidly. Um, Mm -hmm. They, they, they play their, play out their contract. They work throughout their contract and then they move on to the next place being fired is part of the nature of the business. And it's not just soccer, it's in all, all, all sports. And so for him to navigate and balance short-term results, um, his attention to detail within that short-term while maintaining his eye on the long-term is something that is tremendously unique in him because many times you have to compromise Uh, and make significant compromises if you are a short term thinker, um, to, to compromise, uh, some of your long term objectives. Mm -hmm. And to this point, as long as he's been around, I have never seen him compromise long term, uh, long term, his long term vision, um, just at the benefit Uh, of short-term results
0: last and certainly not least during the course of reporting this story i heard something about vermice that sounded too good to be true it involved him working at jiffy lube in high school or college and you know what like i'll just let him tell the story
3: so I, i worked so i worked at jiffy lube and jiffy lube was just coming around and uh i i worked so you had a guy in the top and the guy in the bottom in the bay. So I was the guy underneath, and I changed, like I would change the oil, I would do the transmission fluid, change the gaskets, did the differentials. So I did all that and changed oil filter, all that stuff. The guy up top, he, you know, after I kind of drained and got everything out and did all the stuff there, I would then plug everything back up, and he would put all the the the, you know, the fluids back in or whatever, and and. His job was to then sell, you know, what, what the car needed. If it needed like differential, um, fluid, if it needed new, uh, tra- if the transmission was leaking and I needed to put a new gasket on or whatever. So we had, so that was the first, the one that we were in was the first one on the East Coast that we had, I think it had four bays. I can't remember, three or four bays. Um, because the original ones had like one and two. And this thing had like three or four. And, and then, and we were, we wound up being like the number one grossing, uh, Jiffy Lube on the East coast. Um, and we were the number one day, him and this, me and this other guy, his name was Leroy. And, uh, he did all the selling and I did all the stuff underneath. (laughs) So it's true. It's true. (laughs) So he, he was the front man, and you were like the the muscle or whatever. I, I was I was the worker bee underneath. I mean, because those cars used to come in like in the summertime, they would come in hot. Yeah, you know, uh, right. it, was, it was unbelievable. Yeah, it, that that's 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 real. All right, buddy. All right, All right. thanks for you. Right. See you. Bye.
0: everybody thanks for your time i hope you were worth it and special thanks to savannah smith as always for putting this thing together big thanks to peter vermice carrie zavagnan and everybody else who talked with me uh for that column that i hope you read thanks again for your time and talk to you next week